Hey, welcome back to the Not Quite Compassion podcast. This is episode number nine, entitled How I Still Read the Bible, part two. Uh, before I jump into things, though, a couple quick announcements. One is uh, I want to do a special shout out. Do people still do people still say use the term shout out? That seems very uh, MTV jams circa 1992. But nonetheless, shout out to Sarah Johnson, the the incredible Sarah Johnson, my dear friend. Uh, she just wrote me a really kind uh, note about this podcast and. And how it's been helpful. And then she went and uh, shared it with some friends. And then those friends shared it with some other friends. We're national, guys. We have broken out of the Northwest officially. So, uh, I don't know. That's just kind of cool that you'd trust this enough and think it's helpful. And I just love you to death, Sarah. Uh, Miss you like crazy. All right. Second announcement is um, if you, if this resonates with you, (coughs) you might want to follow me on Twitter jamless plug because uh, i i post on there quite a bit and so uh if you just look up at kyle reynolds uh, you'll find me at k-y-l-e-r-e-y-n-o-l-d-s uh and uh, i'd love that that'd be great all right um maybe someday i'll even like post like hey you got a question and i'll do an episode about it i don't know i don't think we're there yet but let's move forward how I still read the Bible too. I decided to do a second part on this because I was looking at the plays and it seems like this episode, the part one, got a lot more plays than I was expecting. So tells me there's a lot of questions about the Bible. And to start off, I will say the Bible has been historically misinterpreted uh, throughout all of history. And that's why we're really leery of it. Because let's be honest, we've seen a real history of us getting it wrong. Like, for instance, uh, people historically used to use the Bible to, to convince others that the earth is flat. It's not. You'll fall off. Um, and then others have used, like, uh, I, actually, okay, so even, like, last episode, if you, I quoted out of Psalm 139. It says, like, uh, where will I go flee from your presence, God? Even if I go to the ends of the earth, you'll be there. People took that literally, and then they thought you could. Okay. Another one is people... Uh, have used the Bible to say that the earth is really younger than it really is, that it was created in six historically literal 24 hour periods, six actual days. There's a lot of scientific evidence that shows us it wasn't. So you you mount these things more and more and it starts losing the credibility of the Bible because people just keep getting it wrong. Right. Uh, Copernicus started to say that the earth is the center of the universe and the church didn't like that so much. Uh, we use the Bible to defend slavery, and um, it's okay to um, to have slaves. Uh, then we thought that we realized we got that wrong as Christians, and then we started using the Bible to defend segregation. Realized we got that wrong. Then we started using the Bible to defend or to say that people shouldn't have interracial marriages. Got that wrong. Women shouldn't speak. Got that wrong. Women shouldn't lead. Got that wrong. Do you see a pattern here? <laughs> right. So. What I'm suggesting is we need to approach the text more humbly because if there's a long history of it's getting it wrong, why in the world would we suspect that suddenly we're the generation that got it right? Certainty is not what you get with the Bible. You get trust. And uh, it's because it's we're in a relationship. You know, I, that's a whole nother. Anywho, Certainty is not the outcome you get from the Bible. You get trust. 
And that's much different. It is, it is purely arrogance to suggest that we're the ones that finally got it figured out. And, and that sends up a massive red flag to me anytime I hear Christian leaders make that assertion that somehow they're the ones that finally crack the code on the Bible because we haven't. Um, we're seeing this debate even more. We're going to look back in 30 years and realize that we use the Bible to say that the LGBT community is not welcome at the table of God. And, and we're going to all look at back at that and be like, we got that wrong too. And uh, the pattern will continue. And we continue to evolve and to grow and to better understand the in ever-growing capacity God has to love the world. Uh, so let me give you a little example of this. Uh, like... Uh, in today's churches, um, there's a thing called systematic theology that's really popular, and um, and it, this is a way of looking at the Bible uh, in in kind of like categories. Like, uh, if we want to say that God is um, sovereign, that He can do anything anytime He wants, He's God. Um, then we'll we'll grab a bunch of verses from all over the Bible, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, to support this um, idea. That's called systematic theology. It puts the Bible in different categories and boxes. It can be helpful. Terms are helpful. However, uh, this is by far like kind of the, the prominent way in which most American evangelical churches communicate the Bible. And they act as if this is the only way to communicate the Bible. Uh, and it's always been the way that communicates the Bible. And that's just simply not accurate. Uh, around the same time that the systematic theology was created, there was something called the scope, Scopes Monkey Trial. It was around 1925, and it was uh, this trial that was the first time that a teacher was wanting to teach evolution in schools, and the Christians got really, really angry about it, right? Because our Bible says, right, there it is, we're right, we're certain. And uh, and so, uh, but also what's interesting is that's also around the time that they are able to broadcast um actual juries and courtrooms for the first time to all of America. So this is like the first big trial that everyone can listen in on. <clears throat> and in this trial, the Christians won, but they also came across really, really mean because they were like mocking the people on the jury or the people on stand and, and saying how stupid evolution was. And they came across the rest of the, um, to the uh, America as like really kind of jerks. All right. So, so this is blasted out to all of America, and, and for the first time, Christians are getting their power threatened. Like, oh my gosh, there's these other theories, these other ideas. They seem to have lots of credible evidence. We need to double down, which is, oh my gosh, <laughs> oh, that's so often the way we respond or react to culture is we double down on something rather than grow. But the Christians doubled down because they got threatened, and out of that immersed this thing called inerrancy, biblical inerrancy, that, hey, you think you have evidence to support your claims about, we got, our thing is, we're proof positive too. Everything in the Bible is 100% perfect and factual and should be taken literal. And we got the word of God. And, you know, the word of God is actually by the Bible standards called Jesus, not the Bible. But nonetheless, uh, that's where inerrancy sprung up was this idea that the Bible is perfect. And from that, this idea of interpreting the Bible, systematic theology, which is a very scientific approach <laughs> to the Bible. See how they're like, who's steering the ship here? Which is the tail wagging the dog? Nonetheless, it was an overreaction and we treat it as normal today. 
it's helpful. I'm not anti-systematic theology, but man, to say that it was always the way or it's the only way is such a, um, it's just not helpful. So there's other ways. Um, and if you only look at the Bible through that lens, which some of us have been like taught that that's the only way, we end up getting a lot of things kind of screwy. Like um, the book of Job is a great example. So in the book of Job, um, you have some horrible things happen. You have God and the devil kind of gambling <laughs> over this poor man's life that God himself says did nothing wrong. The guy loses everything, his health, his family, his, his house, everything. And then at the end of the story, it's like, the devil's like, oh, you were right, God, you won that bet. <laughs> Good hand of poker. And then, and then God like gives back Job a new family and a new house. Like somehow that just makes everything better. Okay, when you take that story literally, holy shit, God is crazy. Like, oh my gosh, that's awful. What the, why would you ever trust that kind of God? And and, and evangelicals get their get get all like t- tied up in knots because they they only see it through one lens and when you look closer you're like well you're missing the point if we don't take that story literally because big surprise the friends of job in that story are never actually named almost as if they're actors in a play <laughs> because that's the way in which it was supposed to be seen We get hung up on these weird details and we make these giant leaps to who God is and his character when we take some things and force them to be literal. But when we take them as myth, we we were able to see the bigger picture that the story is really actually this beautiful story about trust and suffering, that it's wisdom literature. And it's meant to tell us like what happens when A plus B doesn't equal C in the world. It's just like fucked up and, and people are not getting what they deserve. And other people are like, what happens then? Where is God then? And, 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 and we see that we don't always get these answers to our nice tidy boxes and our neat little questions, but life is messy and it's real. And the Bible depicts it as such. And it helps me when I read that, that story to trust God more because at least he understands me. He gets the mess. And I don't get hung up on this crazy way we interpret it as literal. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? So that's one way of looking at the Bible, but we have to slap on a ton more lenses than just systematic, literal translation. Uh, so I'll give you a couple of other ones. Um, like some other ways of looking at the Bible is through a liberation theology. Um, which I'll come back around to that, but other ones is like Trinitarian theology or biblical theology or feminist theology, which is awesome. But we equate um, traditional theology uh, and we say that's, oh, that's the way. And these other ones are like fringe ones. What we're really saying is, well, traditional theology is, is just white male theology, <laughs> but that equals traditional, right? Do you see how messed up that is? So it's, it's almost sad that we have to even have a feminist theology to counteract the dominant view of scripture, which is through a white male lens. What I'm trying to get across to you is that we all come to the text with a bias, with a filter. Every one of us, myself included, we come to the text with our own background and our own baggage, our own worldview, our own like, um, you know, that I come across to as a straight white male, upper to middle class, 
with my own backgrounds and baggage, my own dad issues, lean on the text, all these things help interpret the text without me even being aware that I'm interpreting it as I read it. And when I look at it that way, I come to it with a particular kind of questions because I come at it with a particular kind of filter. And from those questions, I only derive a certain amount of answers because I'm only asking certain kinds of questions. But if I work hard at coming at the Bible with different angles and at least being aware of the filter that I have, that maybe I'm not noticing certain answers the Bible provides because I don't even aware of the questions to ask, that could help expand what the Bible is. It helps me still read it when I read it from aware of my own filter. So one of the biggest filters that I have personally when reading the Bible is I almost instinctively come at it from the top down, that I'm the one in control I'm the one with power. I'm the one with privilege. I'm the one with resources. I am the one um, that's in control and therefore that presents questions that I look for answers for in the Bible. But when I come at it from the bottom up, oh guys, that's when it gets good. Because here's, here's the clincher, okay? The Bible was primarily written to an audience that was oppressed, powerless, without any control, and highly marginalized. They were defeated, like lacking any sense of like, it was a long-term systemic oppression of people and a culture that was dominated by a military rule. So they're coming at it with a totally different lens and filter than I am. And in that culture, that's where the vast majority of scripture is written and the audience was here. So I got to get, I got to get new ears in order to ask better questions that the people of the time were actually asking. That's a diff- that's what um, ex- exegetical, if you've heard that term, that's what that means, right? Is, is to, um, when you're reading it, to try to understand what was the author intending when he wrote this, right? So that's always like, um, what, like for instance, uh, this always cracks me up when like people use the Bible and, they, and they'll say like, well, you know, the Bible says um, that, you know, all of, all of God's word is, is, uh, is is true and um and uh sharper than any two-edged sword and reliable and the bible says that about itself which is that's kind of a circular reasoning but who wrote that was this guy named paul (laughs) and i'm pretty sure paul would not have written that about his own writings like that seems kind of arrogant to say like oh yeah what i'm writing right now to this church this letter is like totally like it's 100 percent god let me give you some more examples of uh, how it looks like when we look approach the Bible from the bottom up rather than the top down. There's uh, another saying of Jesus that says, like, um, uh, when someone asks you to go walk one mile, walk with them two. Uh, and and we, we've heard this, like that term, go the extra mile, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and so we, we think of that from a top down perspective. I think of that as like on a, a poster on some cubicle in an office somewhere right next to the cat poster that's got the cat holding on. It's like, hang in there. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and so you have it right next to the cat poster is another one that says, go the extra mile. That has a guy like climbing a mountain or something. And it, and then the, the supervisor uses that to come over to the guy. And he's like, how come you didn't turn your TPS reports in on time, Stan? You got to go the extra mile. Uh, <laughs> but that's top down, guys. Bottom up. Oh, wow. 
that's Jesus is saying that um, this idea of when you someone asks you to go one mile, go with them two to a people that are occupied by a, a, the largest military force the history had ever known at that point. And so imagine a dad playing outside with his son in front of his home. And all of a sudden this Roman military force comes walking through town and they take one look at the dad and they want to exert their power, their dominance, their um, oppression. And they, they say, hey, get over here. And so he has to come over because he doesn't have any power, right? He's, he's absolutely powerless. And the, the general gives him his, 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 his bag and uh, he has to put it on and then he has to walk that bag with the rest of the Roman troops a mile so that the general can have a little bit of time without carrying this big heavy pack. And as he's walking, he leaves his kid there on the side of the road and he's feeling humiliated and ashamed and embarrassed. And he walks through town and he catches eye of his wife picking out fruit at the market. And all of his neighbors see him just utterly humiliated, right? And he gets to the end of the mile and they're out of town. And the general says, okay, stop. It's been a mile. And they're kind of laughing at him, mocking him. Put my pack down. You're done. And then in that moment, Jesus says, go ahead and and offer to walk it another mile. Because what happens in that second mile, guys, is so subversive and and so uh, empowering. Because now it's his choice, not the general's choice, right? Now it's his life, his power, right? His dignity. He, when he gets done with that second mile and he says like, oh, I'll walk it another mile, no problem. He walks home with, a, with his head up higher than he ever would have if he would have stopped at the first mile. See, what Jesus is saying is he's inviting people into like, hey, you're oppressed, you're powerless. Let me show you a way to regain some power, to regain some dignity, to understand a subversive kind of freedom. What Jesus is inviting is just like this revolutionary way of living in the world. That's so much better when you come at the text from the bottom up. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? All right, give you some other ones. You've heard of that story when the woman gets caught in adultery and they, the, these, these religious leaders come and they, they find her in the act and they throw her in front of Jesus and she's half naked and um, she's out of sorts. She's crying. She's scared. And they say, hey, our law says to stone this woman, to throw rocks at her until she dies. Horrific way of, of dying, right? It's murder. And she's like, and the religious leaders are like, what do you say, teacher? And Jesus just gets down in the dirt and he starts writing in the sand, right? Which is like dignifying right away to the woman because he's drawing the attention that everyone's looking at this half-naked woman. And now they're looking at what this guy writing in the sand is about. That's incredible, right? But the story goes that Jesus says, okay, whoever is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And so the story goes from the, the oldest to the youngest, one by one, everyone drops their rocks and walks away. My point is when I come at it from the top down, I read that story and I put myself in the shoes of uh, Jesus oftentimes. And we've seen this in churches because at the end of the story, uh, the woman's like, hey, no one's here to condemn me. And Jesus is like, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And so top down, American male evangelical interpretation of that scripture is, hey, you know, we should love people, but we should also tell them go and sin no more. Isn't it amazing that we would take the position of Jesus? Like that's the character we most identify with? No. No, the character that in reality I most identify with is the religious leaders full of power, 
and prestige because I know this Bible well and I can use it to harm people if I wanted to. And when I take this bottom-up approach and realize my actual place in that story as a religious leader, I realize my role in that story is to drop my damn rocks and leave this woman, this scared woman, alone with Jesus and let him do what he does best. Mike, drop that shit. Come on now. Do you get it? Like, <laughs> it's so much better when you come at it from the bottom up and you recognize that your own filters and biases Okay, give you a couple more here. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. We've heard this said at graduations and birthday party cards, birthday cards from grandma. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Beautiful verse. I love it. I've quoted it endless times in sermons. But when I come at it from the top top down, I'm like, look, see, I told you you can get into college. Go get them and get that degree and then get that big house and make sure to get that boat because God has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. <laughs> Bottom up gives me a different picture because I'm recognizing that um, this passage is speaking to a people called Israel. And I am nothing like Israel. Man, I have nothing like them at all. And they're in captivity in Babylon. They're in a land that's not their own. So imagine if uh, uh, Russia comes and invades America and then drags us all back to Russia. And we have to have like really, really low paying, barely survivable jobs. We're basically slaves in captivity. And in that moment, Jesus is give, God is giving that oppressed people some hope. Totally different way of looking at the the passage, right? Um, okay, give me a couple more here. Let's just keep going. Um, Luke 4, Jesus' first kind of like pronouncement of who he is. He goes, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release, release to the prisoners and recover of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's quoting the book of Isaiah. And oftentimes from top down, I will hear that and I'll say, see, God wants to help me with my financial problem. And see, God wants to um, bless my relationship with this this girl that I'm dating or something, right? If I'm, I'm just giving, giving you a different example. That's not me, literally. <laughs> um, and we, or we kind of... We go from this top down, right? And we layer through our filter this privilege and power that we already have and we want additional blessing to it. And maybe maybe he will. I think God really loves us, okay? But we neglect the fact that when we come out from the, the bottom up that um, Jesus is actually talking to people that know others in jail. They've been falsely imprisoned. He knows people that are really, really poor and barely making ends meet. He knows people that are oppressed and deserve liberation. He knows people are actually blind. They cannot see. And he's saying, I'm going to give you your sight back. And that's why it's good news. See, we, we over-spiritualize this text. And we're like, God wants to bless you. No, no. God wants to give your sight back. God wants to make sure that you don't lose your apartment. That you're barely. He wants to make sure you have food on the table for your kids tonight. Like, that's what God wants to do. And it's not just spiritually, it's physically. That's why it's good news to the poor, because they're actually poor. And Jesus is like, I've come to help you. 
He's caring for the body, not just the soul. And oftentimes when we come from the top down, we only think of matters of the soul. And we neglect issues of the body because we don't have any bodily needs. So we go to the, through our privilege to the needs of our soul and we skip over the fact that God really cares about the actual needs of people. Blessed are the poor. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep moving. A uh, couple more here. Um, essentially what I'm trying to get at is if it's not good news for everyone, it's not actually good news. Like, um, give me a couple examples of this. Uh, the cross is, is in l- recent years has been primarily communicated to us as that God the Father has lots of wrath. And he's really angry about our sin and he wants us dead and burning forever in, in hell. But thanks to his son, he he beats up his son really bad and murders him and pours out all his wrath on his kid so that when he looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus and so he could finally see us again because otherwise he couldn't even stand to look at us. But it's because of Jesus that we're able to be in the presence of God, the really angry father. That's how largely the gospel has been communicated to us and it's good news to us, but it can't be good news to everyone. Cause imagine hearing that as an African American man in the 1920s, that on the day before on Saturday, you saw your friend get lynched on a tree by his masters. And then on Sunday, you listened to a sermon about another master that beat up his kid For you, suddenly that's good news? No, that's not good news. So if it's not good news for everyone, it's not actually good news. Or what about this one? When faith becomes an intellectual ascent, that we we, um, understand that in order to be really saved, in order to be a real Christian, you have to understand the atonement and grace and the Trinity. And if you don't, not really a Christian, that saved equals cognitive understanding. But what about the mentally handicapped, the mentally disabled, that can't cognitively understand those theological realities? Are they not saved? No, of course not. Because faith is far more than just like these um, propositional true statements that we have to agree to. Like faith is more than just cognitive understanding. If it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news. Good news is you're loved regardless of your understanding. Good news is that God died because God loves you. All of God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit. You've always been loved. You've always been good. He would do anything to come find you. You have been estranged, but you've never been separated. That's good news for everyone. Do you see the difference? When we come out from the bottom up, we start putting our shoes in people's, um, or <laughs> we start putting ourselves, I was on such a roll. <laughs> All right, let's keep moving. <laughs> so we recognize our own filter and we can, um, we start asking better questions so the Bible can provide us different kinds of answers. We start thinking of categories, I've talked about this before, of, rather than believer versus non-believer, oppressor versus oppressed. So I want to wrap things up and land the plane here a little bit. I give you a couple few ways that I, I how I read the Bible better. Number one, um, I, I've talked about this before, so I'll just touch on it briefly. I've stopped asking as much, did it actually happen? And more is, how is it happening? 
So I stopped getting hung up on the fact that there's a floating zoo that all these animals got on this big boat called Noah's Ark and floated off. And then that's how God flooded. I, I, did that actually happen? I don't know. Probably not, honestly. <laughs> but how is it happening? Woo! Way better. Way more. Uh, such a better question, right? It provides me such more life-changing answers that uh, I realized that... Um, that God is always full of grace and that he always provides a way out and he loves me regardless of my terrible decisions on how I treat this planet. All right, so uh, how is it happening versus did it happen? Number two, uh, I try to interpret within a diverse community, recognizing my own bias and filters. So I need other people with different biases, and different filters so we can come at the text more accurately or at least more holistically. So I'll give you a quick example of this. Um, I, I ran this exercise at Surf Seattle for a number of years uh, when we talked about racial reconciliation. It was so cool. And basically what I do is I line up all these uh, interns in a big straight line across a room. And I would ask them questions. And if they could answer in the affirmative, they would take a step forward. They can answer in the negative, they take a step backwards. And so like questions like, um, when you go into a grocery store, do you find yourself uh, treated differently because of the color of your skin? Uh, if it's, a, if it's a, a no, then you take a step forward. If it's a yes, you take a step backwards. Um, do, you, ha, do you ever get asked to um, answer a question on behalf of your entire race? <laughs> like, as a black person, do you? Uh, <laughs> like, you're just answering for everyone? Uh, take a step backwards if if you do get asked that. Take a step forward if it's no. So by the time all these questions of privilege get asked, um, I have a bunch of white people at the front of the room and a bunch of black and brown people at the back of the room. Now, I did this a few summers ago, and it was a, more emotional than normal, I think, because of the current political climate. And uh, people are kind of crying, letting it settle in that their friends are like on the back of the room, and they're not even close to them anymore. And um, these people to hold hands and now they can't even hold hands. And so, um, in the midst of that, I just asked, okay, tell me some thoughts. Tell me how you're feeling. What are you thinking about this exercise? And the first one or two people from the front of the room were the first ones to answer. And then the next one and the next one. And I had to stop the exercise for a second and stop the people answering the questions because everyone who was answering the question was at the front of the room. And I had to propose to them that, listen, we're only further illuminating the problem. Do you get it? Like we just so easily do not even recognize our own filters and biases. And when we invite the voices of those that are coming to the text with different questions and answers, we, our own blind spots are illuminated for us. So interpret with a diverse, within a diverse community. The Bible is meant to be um, all the all the yous in the Bible are we's, and, and and it's always meant to be um, lived out and read and interpreted and talked about and debated within the context of a diverse community. All right, number three, um, read someone different. Uh, most of the ways throughout my twenty plus years of trying to follow Jesus. I'd say 99% of the ways that I've come to understand God have been taught to me by white, male, middle to upper class men. And most of those 
are actually have been lawyers because a lot of the popular um, biblical scholars uh, um, that have influenced the pastors in our churches or were actually lawyers. So big surprise, there's a heavy weight towards justice, right? And uh, judicial rhetoric. And um, that got, you know, it, 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 there's a clear bias there. And it, when I force myself to read people from different perspectives, wow, that's helped me see the Bible open up. All right, um, one last little hack is um, that I, I've started to pray occasionally to God. When I pray to him, I try to use uh, feminine pronouns. And it, it's just been remarkable how it's just changed a little bit. You know, when I'm like, God, um, good morning, I love you. Um, trying to use a feminine pronoun right now. But um, uh, Anyways, when I think of God as a, as a woman with feminine attributes rather than just only masculine attributes, it seems to change things a bit for me. Because the reality is God is depicted as a female of feminine attributes uh, quite a bit in scripture. And God's far beyond merely having a penis. All right. Um, we went a little long, so I got to wrap that up. Uh, so I hope that helps how I still read the Bible. Um, I, I would ask that you still read the Bible. It's incredible library of books, but I found it far more helpful for me when I focus on coming at it from the bottom up and I read it within community and, um, I recognize my own biases and I do not propose a such arrogance as suddenly I'm the one that suddenly figured it all out that I allow myself to be like a little child and be more curious than um, certain. All right. Um, May you experience this kind of grace this week. The podcast you just heard was published with Anchor. Got something you want to say to the creator of this show? Send them a voice message using the Anchor app, free for iOS and Android.